Welcome to What Do You Know About? My name is Ash, and I will be your tour guide through the lesser-known stories of history. You can join us on your favorite podcast app, or come have a conversation on our Instagram at WDKA Podcast. But first, hold on tight, because we're about to go down a historical rabbit hole with today's episode. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Calling all horse people and all history nerds. Welcome back to What Do You Know About? A little podcast that tries its hardest to give you all a peek into people and events that most don't know much about at all. I'm your host, Ash, and I absolutely love horses. Show jumping and eventing are my usual favorite disciplines for competitive horse things to watch, but I also have a soft spot for horse racing. And it's because of that soft spot that I want to bring you guys the history of this prestigious race that almost everyone in the world knows about, the Kentucky Derby. But first, let's do a quick fair dues warning as this episode will touch upon some sensitive topics in history. There will be talk of racism, slavery, gambling, and high society bullshit. And probably some swearing, but you guys already knew that that would happen at least once. If any of these topics aren't for you, please feel free to skip this one and come back for a different topic or check out our backlog. As a quick guide to the derby that we know today, for those who maybe just know the name and that it's a horse race, I'm going to do a quick rundown of what it is today. It's the first leg of the American Triple Crown, which are the most financially beneficial races in a season, where if a horse and rider can win all three of the races, then the horse is making their owners a killing for the rest of their life. Any jockey, aka rider, who wins a winning horse also becomes famous in the racing world, and is pretty much guaranteed any horse they want to ride, as well as a pay raise for risking their lives every race. The Derby itself is a major event, and it's always held on the first Saturday of May at historic Churchill Downs. Everyone in the stands pays a lot of money to be there, has the most expensive drinks in hand, and is wearing their best outfits, especially the women in their giant elaborate hats. Media coverage of the Triple Crown is insane. Think like Oscars coverage, but without a literal red carpet for the horses to parade on as they enter the stable blocks. Lately, NBC has even had celebrity hosts for their pre-derby shows, including one famous figure skater named Johnny Weir, with his hair styled to look like Pegasus, down to literal flapping wings sewn and tucked into the bouffant. This year is the 149th running of the horse race. Currently, the derby website has 30 horses scheduled to run that people can place their bets on, including a few horses from Japan. 
The favorite to win for this year is Forte, with Practical Move as a close favorite after winning some impressive races back-to-back. The horses are run for approximately two minutes around a one-and-a-quarter-mile length track. For those of you who think in kilometers, that's about two kilometers. For those of you who know more horse racing terms, it's ten furlongs. But the Derby's origins aren't full of glitz and glamour like we see now. The bones of the horse race that society loves so dearly is built off of a need of unmeasurable pride, financial gain, and human oppression. So today we're heading all the way back to 1870s, mainly hanging out in 1875, when the first Kentucky Derby was ever run at the brand new track called Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky. 1875 was an interesting time for America in general, and is really what launched thousands of shoot-em-up western films once film became a thing. This is one of the final years of Jesse James's train-robbing escapades. He does kind of have a part in our story as he enjoyed running around stealing well-bred horses. It's also the time of Billy the Kid and the famous OK Corral gunfight. In sports, other firsts were happening in this same year. Those of you who follow our Instagram page may recognize one of these firsts as this is the same year of the first recorded indoor ice hockey game in Canada. 1875 was also seeing a massive migration happening within America itself. Four million enslaved people were suddenly free, and they were quickly moving from the south up to the north in hopes of new lives. Some did stay in the more familiar areas of the south, but many wanted to be far away from the memories of their enslavements. This migration has a major impact on the story that I'm sharing today. Before we get there, let's look at the name of the Kentucky Derby. Horse racing was huge everywhere by the 1870s, including England, which is what the Americans mainly cared about. One of the closest races to the spectacle that we see as the Kentucky Derby was the Epson Oaks in England that ran at the mansion of the 12th Earl of Derby. At the first run of this race in May of 1779, Lord Derby's three-year-old filly won, and a large party followed to celebrate. Lord Derby wasn't alone with the invention of this race, and just hours after his horse won this brand new race, he had his eyes set on finalizing the next new race with his partner, Lord Bunbury. The two men had a group of partners who were all lords of little decorum, as we'd expect in today's society. They consisted of gamblers and womanizers, and all had extreme wealth of the time. With these first new forms of horse racing, most of these particular men had horses who won and took a lot of the prize money for themselves. Soon, there was only one issue left on the table, the name of the new race. Legend has it that the name of the race was decided on a coin flip. It is very possible that Derby would have suggested the solution, but it's as impossible of an idea that Burnbury would have agreed to it based on a coin flip. The more likely situation is that one of the esteemed members of the club suggested that the Epson Derby was a fine name, and that was that. Sadly, the history of the Epson Oaks and Derby has been pretty lost to time, and all that remains on the land is a stable block and a few signposts. Lord Burnbury won the initial running of the Derby with a horse that would become a legend in American thoroughbred breeding. But there is little knowledge of much more than the winner of the Derby left, not even an idea of how much distance the race was won between the first and second horses over that one-mile course. The Epson Derby continues to this day as part of an English version of the Triple Crown at a newer racetrack in Surrey, England, and is now one and a half miles long, 
the same length of the original Kentucky Derby races before it was shortened. The legacy of the Epson Derby meant that the Kentucky Derby had to live up to its name, which it does as it hasn't missed a year of racing, even when COVID threatened its record. Rather than missing a year, the 2020 Kentucky Derby was simply moved to September 5th and ran with an eerily quiet infield slash stands. It's the only horse race in America to have a perfect record of starts, even though the other two races in the Triple Crown are older than the Derby itself. In our story of the first Kentucky Derby, we have a variety of main characters to discuss. First and foremost, we have Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr., who went to England and saw the Epsom Derby, bringing the idea home to Kentucky to immediately organize the Louisville Jockey Club. I'm going to talk briefly about Meriwether, as there's a couple of other characters who I find to be more important to this first race story. Yes, Meriwether is the reason that there's a race at all, but the people who were involved in the race show a lot more about America at the time and the bones of all future races to come. You might recognize Meriwether's last names. He was the grandson of William Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, and his father, Meriwether Lewis Clark Sr., was a famed major in the American-Mexican War. His mother was Abigail Prather Churchill, a member of one of the colonial families of Kentucky. I'm making the distinction in acknowledgement that the land was originally owned by the indigenous families, so it's colonial families. Abigail sadly passed away when Meriwether was a child, and he moved to the massive farm that was run by his aunt's family. This would be the land that his aunt and uncle would ultimately donate to his racing endeavors to become Churchill Downs. Meriwether wasn't a great person, however. There are many stories of him threatening people around the track with his gun, including an incident where he was shot by one of the top breeders after he'd threatened him and then banned him from the track. The ban was lifted soon after the shooting, but his quick temper kept everyone on edge. Though he was the mastermind behind the track and the racing legacy to come, Meriwether didn't have much to do with the Churchill Jones in the future. He would end up going broke during the stock market crash of 1893 and committed suicide by gun on April 22, 1899, as he couldn't handle the thought of living in poverty. As I said, Meriwether's only a tiny part of this story. In order to have a horse race, you need horses. To get the horses, you need extremely wealthy horse owners who have the money to train champions. For the horses to even race, you need jockeys who can get the best out of the horses at the instant that the gates open. One of these such owners and breeders was H. Price McGrath, who ran the breeding farm called McGrathiana. If we thought that threatening people around the tracks with guns was unseemly, McGrath takes that challenge and runs with it. He was a wealthy man who wanted even more wealth and had a gambling addiction. His addiction to money and gambling was so bad that he wouldn't blink twice if there was a way to fix things to go his way. McGrath was known to strong-handle people, and if that didn't work, then he'd publicly accuse them of cheating in order to get them out of his way. These antics were only for those who opposed him in his gambling habit or his racetrack record. Everyone else got to see the charming host who would have grand feasts at the farm, even though these guests described McGrath as a hard man holding grudges against those from his childhood who might have held him back. In hopes of gaining as much money as possible, a younger McGrath started running gambling houses after a trip to California where he attempted to steal the riches from those doing the work in the gold rush. His gambling business got him arrested around the Civil War for enticing returning soldiers into crooked card games. McGrath spent a year in federal prison where his only lesson learned was not to run his houses in New Orleans anymore. 
At the time, he was making approximately a million dollars in his share of profits from his establishments. He used his profits to buy the property that would soon hold the McGrathiana farm. American horse racing in the 1800s was predominantly owned by rich Caucasian men from the heads of breeding operations to the less hands-on owners, but the stables themselves were almost purely African-American staffed. McGrath himself hired Ainsel Williams as his head trainer at the farm. Ainsel was born a slave in 1806 in Virginia, where his owner at the time trained him on how to train his own horses. In 1864, Ainsel was purchased by a notable racing stable called Woodburn Stud in Midway, Kentucky. He was freed from slavery after a while, but stayed on until the owner of Woodburn passed away. Renowned for his training of champions, Ainsel was sought after by many barns, including McGrath's, where he ultimately trained the first-ever Kentucky Derby champion. In 1998, Ainsel was inducted into the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame. Ainsel made sure that his fellow African Americans were well taken care of, both on the track and off of it, by sewing a community of African American horse trainers and jockeys that would share information to pass on to those who were heading to the betting windows. Bookers at the Belmont Stakes in 1875 complained that they lost a lot of money because the African Americans won back their large investments and then some due to the advice of Old Angel. At the McGrathiana barn, there was a little colt who was well bred but not a favorite to win races. As a two year old being run in his races, Aristides lost the majority of races that were less than a mile long. In fact, he only won one of these races out of seven of them in his entire racing career. But as he aged and the races got longer, he showed some talent and speed. The small, bright red chestnut with a star on his forehead would go on to win 8 out of 14 races that were 8 or more furlongs in length. It's rumored that he could have won more if it wasn't for his owner, H. Price McGrath, asking his jockeys to make the horses lose because he had money on one of the competitors. For Aristide's first season in 1874, it is also speculated that Ainsel had told McGrath to keep his bets on other horses, as Ainsel used the shorter distances as training races, since there were no distance races for two-year-olds at the time. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There were two other two-year-olds from the barn who were trained alongside Aristide, Chesapeake and Kelvin. Kelvin would go on to win that 1875 Belmont Stakes that I just talked about. Before we can talk any more about Aristides, though, we need to take a quick detour and find out more about the other half of the winning team, the jockeys. In the USA, African Americans were the dominant jockeys in the industry. Those of you listening who have watched horse racing might be asking me, are you sure? When we watch the races, it's mainly Caucasian or Hispanic people riding. If there's an African-American jockey, it's treated like it's a huge historical event, not unlike how we're treating the first African-American to go orbit the moon coming up. I can tell you from my research that I'm absolutely sure about this. The fact that we don't see many African-American jockeys today is likely due to the fact that they pretty much abandoned the American racing scene in 1909 and left to go work the European circuits. And I'm honestly not surprised with the way that they are most likely treated. In order to understand, we have to look back at the beginning of America and the slave trade. Few African-American riders were freeborn at this time. Those who were likely got into the sport because their families owned horses or because they worked at a racing stable and showed talent. The majority of them were slaves, either ones who showed talent naturally or were forced into the racing scene as free labor if they had the necessary build or personalities. It would be one less person to get a slice of the winnings. Even still, being a jockey was seen as a privileged duty for the slaves, as they'd be treated a lot better, and they'd get to travel with their owners, without fearing retribution for passing state lines unlawfully. Many of these slaves would be born to the saddle, where they were almost bred to be the right size and build, and then it's introduced to the horse world as literal infants. It was a common idea that if they were trained in this way, then they'd have no fear upon a horse at any speed or with any tantrums that the horse might have. 
boy and horse would be as one. These boys would ride as long as their size, weight, and skills allowed, before returning to the plantations or barns to be trained as the next generation of trainers to future slaves. It would not be uncommon to see adverts in the local sporting papers for African-American jockeys for sale. Those who were slaves wouldn't be allowed to use their own names when they rode. Instead, they'd represent their owners or whomever they were leased out to for each race. When one looks at the racing logs for this time period, you'd really only see first names listed, and so it became extremely difficult to tell which jockeys rode which horses and what each jockey's stats were for their racing careers, as you'd have multiple boys with the same name, unless their owners were nice enough to give them an initial to go after it. The Civil War helped African Americans find some more freedom, but it didn't last long. Jim Crow laws started to be put in place in 1876 after that particular presidential election. The Plessy v. Ferguson Supreme Court ruling implemented the separate but equal ideas that were the backbone for the next 60 years of segregation. The racing world itself changed as recessions hit, causing there to be fewer mounts and less prize money available. White jockeys started to get threatened by their African-American counterparts, who won the majority of the races and it likely got violent between the parties. Even society started to get upset as American horse racing was seen as a white person's sport, so it was unnerving that the African-Americans were winning the races and the betting pools. And that's only to name a few of the reasons that they'd want to leave the sport and the country. But we're talking about the first ever Kentucky Derby. We're talking about Ainsel Williamson. We're talking about Aristides. So we need to talk about the teenager who rode Aristides on that May day in 1875, Oliver Lewis. Neither Ainsel nor Oliver were talked about in the press around the Derby, as their boss, McGrath, got all of the attention as an Irishman with a huge personality and colorful past. This was, of course, because of the racism of the day, as well as the fact that neither really had a great education, so they weren't well-spoken, and the press didn't really want to talk to them. While Ainsel got into the Hall of Fame, Oliver would not get in that distinction, as he sadly didn't ride for many races, and only had one amazing win under his belt. In fact, doing research about Oliver Lewis comes up with the term, very little is known about Lewis's life, quite a bit. What we do know about Oliver is that he was born in Kentucky in 1856 and was a small boy, perfect for being a jockey. He worked his way up the ranks to become one of McGrath's favorite jockeys in his pool, even though he wasn't as likely to be ruthless like some of the others in order to ensure a win. Oliver was probably the third-ranked jockey, just behind William Henry, who ran in the derby with Chesapeake and was the favorite of the barn to win. McGrath's favorite, more ruthless jockey was, not so shockingly, white and much older than 19-year-old Oliver. But Oliver was still amazing in the saddle and was a gentleman, completely willing to ride as he was directed, even if it meant losing a race on purpose to help his boss's wallet grow. If he'd been able to ride for even a few more years, Oliver might have become one of the best jockeys of his time, and we'd possibly know more about him. It is truly unfortunate that history didn't keep a record of his life before and after this 1875 Kentucky Derby ride. Now we come to the day in question. May 17, 1875. McGrath decided to keep Calvin out of the Derby lineup so that the horse would be ready for the Belmont Stakes in a few weeks' time. He had a plan for his other two horses. Chesapeake would be the winner, 
and Aristides would be there to ensure a swift, plotted-out pace for his stablemate to use for the win. It was a beautiful, warm, and sunny day. The lot of the brand-new track was full of mule-driven streetcars and wagons as people packed into the stands for a day of racing. The stands were literally still being built, with workers hammering nails into the supports for them as the early birds started arriving. The infield also started to fill with horse-drawn carts as those spectators arrived for the free seating. They'd go make their bets and then spread out homemade picnics as they waited for the excitement to start. They were all there for a three-race program, unaware of the fourth race that had been added. Ten thousand of them, including the women who were seated in a special section, made especially for the quote-unquote fairer sex, were there for this first derby. The derby started later in the afternoon, with 15 three-year-olds chomping at the bit. 13 colts and two fillies ridden by 13 African-American jockeys and two white jockeys. Each of the horses had a different story, with some being champions already and others barely effective in their entry-level races. Today, the derby is highly elite, and horses have to earn their way into the three races of the Triple Crown. There are no first-time racers invited as they were in the early days. There also wasn't a starting gate like we have in modern racing. Rather, there was a length of tape across the field that the horses would be lined up at, and Colonel Johnson standing there holding the tape and a flag. Once the horses were lined up, he'd pause to make sure that no one would suddenly break through with a false start, then wave the flag and shout, Go! as he dropped the end of the tape. At the same time, an assistant would be banging on a drum, and another assistant, 50 yards down the track, would also wave a flag before rushing out of the way while 15 giant thoroughbreds came rushing straight at him. As planned, Aristides broke fast, setting a good pace with four other horses. Chesapeake was in the back, biding his time and letting the leaders tire before making a move. The early leader horse, recovering from an illness, did as expected and started to drift to the back of the pack, allowing Aristides to take the lead. Oliver could feel the energy that Aristides was holding back. His job was to set the stage for Chesapeake to come in strong later, but Chesapeake wasn't doing much in his current position. Impatient, Oliver tried to keep Aristides reined in as he waited for the burst of speed that was expected from the other horse. Aristides wasn't backing down, though, so Oliver had to double his efforts or risk being fired. Looking for his stablemates, Oliver spotted McGrath in the stands, waving frantically at him, his lips moving without any sound reaching Oliver's ears. It was only a fraction of a second of a look, so the 19-year-old had to make a decision on his own as to what he would do. One last glance behind him told him that Chesapeake was nowhere in sight, so he released his hold on the reins and let Aristides take over. They won with nearly two lengths between them and the next two horses in the field. The celebration was a lot smaller than what we'd see today. Roses weren't deemed the official flower of the race until 1884, and the first garland of roses to be draped on the winner's back wouldn't be until 1896. The red roses wouldn't be standard until 1904 when they switched from the pink and white to the brighter color that we know today. There also wasn't a trophy of sorts with the first trophy to be handed out in 1923 as a prototype, and then the current version being awarded in 1924 to Mrs. R. M. Hoots for her Colt Black Gold's win. While McGrath would be the first Kentucky Derby winner, 
It is said that he was actually seething at the fact that he lost a ton of money on his enormous bet on Chesapeake. The fact is, there are a few possible outcomes of this situation. McGrath was a very good gambler, and he knew his way around fooling other people out of their money. He may not have put as much money into Chesapeake as we think, but instead told people all about it so that they would do the bidding and raise Chesapeake's odds. In horse racing, you get more money if you bet on the horses with fewer odds, but they end up winning as the underdogs. If McGrath did do this trick, he would have made a killing off of Aristide's unfavored win. Every single decision he made with Aristide's career, from what races were run to the jockey he chose, could have been towards this one ultimate gamble. And that's history. Of course, as always, this is only an overview. There are so many details that we could have gone into, but I decided to leave those details to racing historian Mark Schregner in his book, The First Kentucky Derby, 13 Black Jockeys, One Shady Owner, and The Little Red Horse That Wasn't Supposed to Win. The book releases in May of 2023, so if you found this overview of the history interesting, please be sure to check it out from your local bookstore or library. He talks a lot more about the history behind the event, as well as more of the African Americans who the Derby and American horse racing are really built upon. Thank you for bearing with me through this niche piece of history. I really appreciate all of you listeners for being with me through this journey. I do have some really exciting episodes in the work for this summer, so stay tuned. And if you are interested in seeing the modern-day spectacle of the Kentucky Derby, be sure to check it out on your TV guide for May 6, 2023. Come on over to our Instagram page, WDYKA Podcast, and share your picks for this year's event. Doesn't matter if you know your horse racing, sometimes even the best-sounding names is a good pick. On that note, I will see you guys all next time on this crazy tour of the lesser-known sides of history. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope that you found something new and will check out the resources in the show notes to get more information. In the meantime, I would really appreciate it if you could rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so more history nerds can find me. Don't forget to check out our Instagram page at WDYKA Podcast, as well as considering helping me out with a donation or membership on Buy Me a Coffee. The link is in the show notes and on our IG link tree. Thanks so much and see you next time on the lesser known side of history.